The scripture reading for this morning is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. If you would turn with me in your Bibles there. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we have extras. We have blue Bibles on the end of each row. And if you're here and you don't have your own personal copy of the Bible, we would love for you guys to take it home and read it for yourselves and take it as a gift. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt. So sometimes you have to laugh when things take a bad turn. And that bad turn can sometimes even be something like death. Uh, 20 years ago, I was in my first pastorate, which was a revitalization work. When Elizabeth and I got there, uh, the median age of the church was in the 70s. Uh, Our kids, our two kids, doubled the nursery when we got there. I did a lot of funerals. I did 25 funerals in three years. But the hardest funeral of all was with one of the younger people in the congregation, a 41-year-old man named Kirk, who had contracted uh, kidney cancer. Kirk had a wife uh, and a little seven-year-old son, And uh, that was a really hard moment for our church and for this family. He fought bravely for nine months, but eventually succumbed to kidney cancer. And uh, so you can imagine what it's like sitting down with a family planning a funeral with a family in this kind of state. It's very hard. It's taken a really bad turn. So I'm sitting with a wife. We're planning the funeral. And uh, uh, we're going through the things. And then she says, can I ask one thing? And I was like, sure. She said, uh, could we have a pirate ship in the processional? I said, I beg your pardon? She said, a pirate ship. I want it to be in all the processional of the cars as we leave the service and go to the cemetery. I said, uh, so apparently her husband had been a part of the Shriners. And they had teams of guys who would get on these parade floats and they would go through parades, and they'd be raising money for kids in the kids' hospitals and things like that. He was on one of these teams with a pirate ship. So being a young pastor like I was, I thought, well, sure, why not? So we had the funeral, and it, I mean, it was a tough day. I mean, you can imagine show up, this, this relatively young man leaving a wife and a kid behind was tough. So we get, go outside, we leave the funeral, the body is rolled out and put into the hearse. And I tell you, I have to tell you that when I got in the car and we started driving in the processional, I had to laugh. 
I had to laugh, and here's why. You can imagine the front of the whole procession was the police car. Then there's the pastor typically behind him. Then comes the hearse, and then after that is uh, the family's limousine. But in this case, behind the family limousine was a truck pulling a 40-foot parade float that was a pirate ship with banners and flags waving all over the place. So as we're driving down the road, you can't help but see this and think, what is going on? This is amazing. So we all ended up at the, at the graveside. We all get out as family. And as we're facing this really somber moment where we're burying Kirk, we look at each other, the family and me among others, and we smile. We smile because of what just happened. Guys, that's what we're going to talk about today. In John chapter 14, where death is in the air, the, the very uh, smell of it with Jesus coming up on his very, the very end of his life, and yet in the middle of it, you can smile. You can smile because Jesus has great news for us today on how we can live even with the specter of death in life. Uh, John 14 is Jesus' farewell address. It's what he says to his disciples in just the hours before he is arrested and sent to his own death on the cross. And he speaks words of hope and assurance, the very thing we need when there, things take a really bad turn and we're wondering where our future is going to go. Jesus has great words to give us assurance. So here are our questions for the day. What when things take a bad turn and we're uneasy about our future, what hope, what assurances can we have that really work for our life and our future? And then what or who is the way that we can enjoy the, these assurances of the future personally? You can see the outline in your bulletin. And uh, I'm going to give you five assurances that Jesus, give, that Jesus gives us. He says, let not, I will... Uh, uh, excuse me, I go, I will come, I am, and you know. There are the five right there. Uh, I, let not, I go, I will come, and I am, and you know. Those are the five assurances. So let's catch up in John 14. We find ourselves in, again, a somber, loaded moment in the life of Jesus and the disciples. Death is in the air. It should have been a happy moment. They just had the Lord's Supper for the first time, uh, celebrating with Jesus. But Jesus, even in the middle of that, starts talking about his body and his blood. And then things are clearly changing. Judas Iscariot just walked out of the room in this scene. Uh, he walked out of the room to betray Jesus in particular. And then Jesus turns to Peter, who proclaims his ultimate uh, uh, commitment to Jesus and says, no, you're going to actually deny me before the, the, the cock crows. As a result, this is uh, becoming a really tense moment for everybody, and even worse. Jesus says this. He says, I'm leaving. I'm going away, and you can't go with me. So you can imagine, within a matter of moments, the disciples' heads were spinning. They're troubled at what they're experiencing. And you've got to know the word here for trouble d d describes agitation, like in, a, in the Old Testament Greek. It, uh, des it describes like a, an earthquake or a great storm. With this earthquake coming into their lives, they're thinking, what is our future going to look like? 
So what does Jesus do in the face of all this relatively bad news? He assures them. He assures them about their future. And you see it in verse 1 when he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. There's the classic biblical ethic. Don't do this. Do that. Don't be troubled. Believe is what he's saying in our text. Now, let me, let me clarify when he says don't be troubled, believe. He's not saying don't feel because everybody feels when they encounter something in life. What he's really getting at is what are you going to do with your feelings? Where are you going to go with it? When you feel troubled, where do you go next? Do you sit with it, hang on to it, worry about it? Jesus is saying, don't do that. Go to me with your feelings of trouble. Remember, feelings are our dashboard in our lives. I say this particularly to men. Whenever you have feelings inside, it reveals what's going on with you or what's going on in your world and how we have a longing that is affecting us. Well, here these guys are troubled because their longings of what they wanted in this situation are going awry. But Jesus is after something here. And what he says in believe in God, believe also in me is this. He's just saying, trust me. Trust me. Trust that God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son are in, committed to one task in our lives. And that task is this, to rescue us. To rescue us. Our God is a saving, a rescuing God. Psalm thirty-three, eighteen says this. It says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. We could say believe in him as well. On those who hope in, the stead, in his steadfast love that he may deliver their souls from death and keep them alive in famine. Hear that? This language that God delivers. And this is the thing we often forget in our walks with Jesus, is that Jesus not only delivers us from our sin, but he also delivers us from our circumstance in many cases. He wants to rescue us, even from the last enemy, death, our last vocation in life. Our assurance is that Jesus is looking for ways to rescue you. That's what he's doing. There's a well-known story about a famous ethicist named John Cavanaugh. He, he decided one time he wanted to go work with Mother Teresa in Calcutta in India. And he did so for three months, helping her care for the dying. Cavanaugh found himself as a leader struggling with a major decision in his life. So he, he petitioned for a meeting with Mother Teresa, who asked him, what can I do for you? And so here's what John Cavanaugh says. He says, Mother, I want you to pray for me. Pray that I will have clarity about a major decision to make. You know what Mother Teresa said? She said, no, I'm not going to pray for you and your clarity. That's the last thing you need right now. That's the thing that keeps you from God. I will, however, pray that you'll learn to trust. She said, I don't even have clarity in life, but I've had to learn more and more about trust. That's what Jesus is saying in this text, is that in the face of death, there isn't a lot of clarity sometimes. But one thing is true. Jesus is saying, trust me. Trust me that I'll bring you through all this. When things go wrong, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't sit and worry. 
Fear the Lord. Trust Jesus to rescue you as your Savior. Well, Jesus is just getting started. That's his first assurance. He says, trust me. But now he knows death is in the air, so he wants to go to another place. He's going to the cross, and he wants to take his disciples with him beyond that place. So Jesus gives words of hope and assurance in the face of death in verses 2. Look at that with me. It says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says two things here. I go, and I'm going to come back. I go, and I'm going to come back. He's going somewhere, uh, and he'll come back and get the disciples. And this is, of course, a reference to heaven. That's what Jesus is after. And he's clearly teaching that he's going to a real place, that heaven is not merely an abstract thing. And he teaches that This heaven place is where a father, his father, has a house, and there are many rooms in it. The implication is this. Death isn't all there is. Christ and Christianity teach that there is life after death, and death doesn't exist in heaven. Now, immediately when I say things like this, that are life after death, we run into challenges. Uh, We live in a secular world, and less and less people believe in life after death or have no kind of idea what to do with that. And someone might ask, how can you know that there is life after death? After all, the atheists will say, you live, you die, and that's it. But of course, the problem with this view is it has no sense of purpose to it, and it has no end game. And you're really left to despair in the end. And what I would ask you in your atheisms is this. Do you really want to live in despair? Agnostics will say in the face of life after death, I don't know and I don't want to know. But the problem with this view of not deciding or suspending judgment indefinitely is you end up living with fear and uneasiness about the end game. Is that what you really want to live with is fear? Uneasiness the rest of your life? Some religions believe in reincarnation, that you keep coming back until you get it right in this life. With that view, who can't end up being angry? Because the the goalpost is always moving. Do you want to keep living in anger? Jesus has given us a real picture of something different here. He talks about heaven as this real place to go and live life with him. And the reason we know it's a real place, a physical place, just like we have physical material reality here, is that Jesus not only goes to the cross, he also is resurrected with a real body. And wherever Jesus shows up with a real body, that is a real place, a material place, because that's where Jesus is. If Jesus has a real body then where he ends up in heaven must be a physical place. The historic resurrection and the ascension of Jesus is why we believe heaven is real, a place you can touch. There's more here, though. Jesus is giving us a promise that heaven can be our destination if we are connected to Christ by faith. We don't have a lot of time. Oh, man, I wish we could go into what heaven is like. But it is a place of this. Heaven's a place of tremendous joy. Those who trust in Christ and his cross experience Jesus' own words, paradise. 
We believe it is a holy place, a place without sickness, death, broken relationships. It's a place full of love, as Edward says. He goes to that place because he's building a new world. It's a little bit like Downton Abbey. This big house, except it's way bigger. And there's no upstairs and downstairs because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But imagine being in a glorious place like that, or Windsor Castle, you name it, a glorious place. That's what he's talking about. But even better, in this assurance about heaven is a real place where he's going to prepare it, he tells us there are many rooms. You notice that? You know what that is? That's his way of saying, there's plenty of space. There's tons of space. You don't have to be afraid that you're not going to get in because there's not enough space, like at a concert or something. Jesus is saying, you, we have space for you in particular. Heaven's a free gift. This is his invitation. Come, take it. Come with me to heaven. Well, what's this got to do with us? Well, everyone in life, Christian or not, really wants a sense of place, don't we? We all want to belong. We want to connect in a community tied to a very real location. We all feel a sense of loneliness in this life. Even if you're in a family, a marriage, a community for a long time, you still have the ache of loneliness in you. All of us here, in other words, want home. And that's what Jesus is talking about, is home. He's making a promise that home is with him in heaven, ultimately. And he's preparing that place for us to be in the presence of God himself. When you're in heaven, you are with God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You get to see Jesus face to face with resurrection eyes. I ask you today, where is your sense of place? Where is your sense of place, your sense of home? Where is your sense of heaven? Is it here in this world? Are you busy trying to make plans and build a life here to make it be as much home as possible? And here's what I'll tell you. It's okay to try and build a home even in a family, but you got to know you'll always run into futility. It'll never be enough. It'll never get it exactly right. With church, we'll try and build home here, right? But i got to tell you, it'll always have futility because we often want heaven now. But what Jesus is saying is heaven is truly to come. Our world is a wonderful place. But it is a broken place with death all over. Francis Schaeffer said it was a glorious ruin. But that's why Jesus is going to prepare a holy and perfect place with God. He's preparing a real home for you and for me. If you long for home in this life, in a relationship, in your job, in church, in your family, I'm telling you, you'll get little tastes of it, but you'll never have it to the full because there's one place that's truly home, especially for those who call Jesus their Lord and Savior. If you're not a follower of Christ today, I've got to ask you, what's your end game? What's your end game in life? What happens after death for you? Where are you going, and why do you believe that? You ought to know that um, my first funeral as a pastor, the first one I ever did, that church, 20 years ago, was a murder. 
There was a 90-year-old woman in our church who had her 72-year-old son living with her. A man broke into their house. Uh, The son got up to try and uh, see what was going on, and the robber shot him in the head, dead. I had to bury this guy because he didn't have a church. He wasn't a Christian. And as a result, I had to tell people about the hope of heaven, but I didn't know where he was. I could tell him about his life. I mean, he had worked for NASA and helped build the space shuttle, but I could tell them nothing about where he was going afterwards. Where are you going after death? What's your answer to that question? Jesus is saying, you can hitch your ride up to me by faith and enjoy true home, true home with Jesus in eternity. If you're a follower of Jesus, in light of what Jesus is saying here in this text, i got to ask you as well, where are you worried today about your home? (laughs) Do you feel uneasy about this world? Of course, you never feel uneasy about the politics going on in America right now, right? (laughs) Well, that's part of the problem is the people in politics, you cannot build home here. Home is with Jesus. You'll never find it in America. You'll get tastes of it in a church. Look for home in Jesus. Here's what's great about this. If you're a follower of Jesus and you trust in him for your salvation, you're going to be with Jesus forever. Do you see what he said? I will come back and you will be with me. See how he talks about that? I will take you to myself and where I am that you may be also. This is the wonder of heaven. You get to be with Jesus. You get to be with the one who loved you and gave himself for you. The magnificent Christ, the personal Christ. You get to be with him personally. And you got to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I'm just not, it's not just that I'm tolerating you and yeah, you can come to the house. He's coming back to get you when you die. And eventually, when the resurrection comes and unites body and soul together, he's coming back. He wants us to be with him is what he's saying in this text. Think of the war movie like uh, 12 Strong, a new favorite of mine, or We Were Soldiers or Forrest Gump. Imagine you're a soldier left on the battlefield after a great battle. You're wounded. You can't help yourself. Well, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying he gets in that helicopter. He flies in under enemy fire and rescues you from death and takes you home to home base. Your captain will rescue you ultimately from death, finally and fully. If that's not assurance, I don't know what is. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I go and I come back for you. Now, someone here might say, well, okay, that's all fine and good, Dean. All fine and good, but how? How do we get to heaven? Well, guess what? Same question shows up here, right here in the Bible. In in our text in verse uh, 4, Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas says, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, here's what's interesting about this. Uh, you know, Jesus is just explained he's going to heaven. And granted, it is a little cryptic. The guys don't understand. He's already said, I'm leaving. You can't follow me. But here, I'm coming back to get you later on to take you to heaven. And then Thomas, the all-time skeptic, is going like, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. You just told us you're going away, and we can't follow you. 
And, and now you're telling us we know the way? Now you got to know the word for way there in Greek is the same road for, word for road, as in a road you walk on or drive on or something. Well, that's, that's his thing. He's saying, hey, can't you give us a map? Can't you pull out your Google Maps on your phone or your Waze uh, app? Jesus is, of course, very patient with him as he is with us. And he responds in this way in verse, in verse 6, in this classic text, one of the seven I am statements of the book of John. I am the way. I am the road, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This, of course, is one of the most controversial things Jesus says in the Bible. And it's controversial, countercultural, every way you can describe it, because Jesus is making a claim of exclusive uh, entry into God's heaven through him. And, and I think there are really five really brief things that Jesus is addressing here that's worth considering in this text on how to get to heaven and how he eradicates all assumptions. And the first uh, uh, assumption that he challenges is this. Jesus says this challenging thing, I am the way. If you were to read the Greek, it'd be, I am the truth. I am the life. Now, you got to know, that's way different than Muhammad. That's way different than uh, Buddha or Confucius or the Bhagavan Vita. You know why it's different? Because all of those other religious leaders and religious texts say, there is the way. There is truth. There is life. Jesus has the gall to say, I'm it. I'm the one you need. you got to go through me to get to God. So clearly, that's a challenge to what we normally think in our world of various options. Second challenge is this. Jesus is saying he's the only way to the one true God. There's no other way to God through any other religion or worldview. That's what he's saying. He's being exclusive here, no doubt. Now, of course, a great many disagree with this. And many definitely disagree. So let's just kind of put it all out there. Let's not ever say Jesus is this wonderful teacher who says nice things that we need to learn from and not take this seriously, what he says. He is saying, I'm the only way you can get in with God. And uh, he's making it very clear that he's drawing a line in the sand at this point, in our culture even. The third challenge that Jesus is giving to our assumptions about him and about the ways to God is this. All religions are basically the same. He is basically challenging that idea. All religions are basically the same. You've probably heard that, haven't you? Uh, now, the thing I'd say is when you hear someone who says all religions are basically the same, you've got to ask this question. You sure about that? Have you actually studied what all the religions say? You know what would happen if, it's like a bad joke, okay? What would happen if you got a Christian, a Buddhist, a Muslim, and a Confucian person in the same room, a New Age person in the same room to talk to each other? Do you think they all would agree that it's the same? I don't think so. When you look at the actual tenets of belief of all the religions, they all say there's very different ways to God. They aren't even close. And I can assure you, Jesus himself wouldn't say they're all the same way. And it'd be somewhat of an insult to think that he does think that. Jesus' fourth challenge would be this. 
a fourth assumption that we wrestle with and that we hear in our world is, well, all religions are false as they're bound by cultural and historical bias. No doubt, culture and bias comes into all worldviews. But as Tim Keller rightly says, it's a lack of self-awareness to think that you can say your religion is affected by your, world, uh, your cultural bias or your background and not think that you are not affected by your cultural background and bias. We all are affected in some meaningful way. How are you culturally bound in your assumptions about Jesus in the way? The fifth challenge, and the final is this, and it's a challenge to the most common phrase I hear among my neighbors and friends in this culture. Well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Very often the spiritual but not religious folks invoke the popular analogy of the group of the blind men who find an element, elephant. Have you heard this analogy? The analogy goes that multiple blind men come upon an elephant and feel different parts. One blind man feels the trunk and says the elephant's a big snake. One blind man feels the side and says the elephant feels like a wall. One blind man feels the legs and says the elephant is a tree stump. The point of the analogy is that is this, that each blind man is a religion that just understands parts of the reality. And it is a arrogant to think you can understand all of the reality. But the problem with this spiritual, not religious view is this. It is actually arrogant itself to think that you can see all those other people, the blind man, and see the elephant yourself, but others don't. Do you really want to say that you understand everything? Do you really want to say you understand what happens after death, that you get that? You see, reality is everyone who makes a statement about God, even about our eternal destiny, is religious. Even if you don't believe there's a God, you're a theologian by making any commentary about God. Jesus is offering something very different here. He's offering a life after death through him. He says, I'm the only way. He's God in the flesh offering to be in relationship with us so that he goes on to build a final home for us, a place that's paradise with him. And he's the only person who can speak with authority about this. Who in history can speak with authority about life after death? Well, the only person that could be would be someone who died and came back. Jesus is giving us a promise because he's a resurrected Lord who can lead us beyond death. That brings us to the final assurance from verse 7. Jesus says, from now on, you do know the Father and have seen him through me. Jesus is not saying to the disciples, you know about God, you know about God. He's saying, you know God. And not only do you not know about God, you, you see him. You actually can see him because you've seen me. Oh, man, I wish we had time to go into the seeing language of the book of John. We'll come to that later on. But Jesus is offering a vital and living relationship to all of us. And the way to know God is through Christ. And the promise of Jesus in our passage is this, that you can know him personally even into life after death. Jesus keeps it going on in eternity because he has rescued us 
from sin and death at the cross. Let not. I go. I come back. I am. You know are all pointing to the same thing. Christ is our assurance. Not ourselves. Not what we can do or figure out in life. But the one who's been to death and has come back again. Back in 1800s, there was a pastor named Henry Venn. And uh, he had preached for many, many decades. And he had a son named John. And he came to the end of his life, Henry Venn did. And he ended up in his son's home, John's home. And uh, he was dying. At the very end of his life, he was dying, of course. And the doctor came. And the doctor said to uh, John, his son, and the family, and to Henry as well, well, you only have hours to live. So you know what Henry Venn did? After years of following Jesus, after decades of preaching about Jesus, you know what he did? He got so excited, he lived two more weeks. The thought of going to heaven got him so excited that he kept going. That's the kind of hope we have, guys. Because Jesus is real. You can bank your life on it. Because Jesus is real. And he's the way. We have the hope of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the gift of heaven purchased for us at the cross. For your resurrection that gives us hope that we can trust you unlike any person in history And, Lord, that you break down all of our assumptions about you being the only way and show us that you are the true one to have life in. So, Lord, as our way, truth, and the life, we pray today that each person in this body would encounter you, would know you, would even see you by trusting in you anew. In this season where we're looking to you in Christmas, we want to know you again and know you personally. Let not our hearts be troubled, Lord. Lead us to yourself in Christ's name. Amen.